from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, and for the Pacifica Radio Network, this is the Beloved Community. Resources for Activism, I'm John Schuck. Today, we are going to talk about race and racism. It's a conversation that is long overdue. White people need to recognize that racism exists, and we need to be sickened by it, and we need to dismantle it. It's now been 53 years since the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his iconic I Have a Dream speech. There will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro is granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation. So what's happened to the dream? That's today's question. My three guests today will offer their insights based on their track record of social change. The Honorable Joanne Hardesty is president of the Portland chapter of the NAACP. She is a community organizer and activist who advocates for those on the downside of power. And what we see today is that hate is actually leading the conversation. Anti is leading the conversation. Otherness is leading the conversation. Teresa Rayford is the lead organizer of Don't Shoot Portland, a social justice movement in support of Black Lives Matter as a response to police brutality and the criminalization of black American youth. There's a dysfunction in uh, adequately training and programming our youth on what the dream actually meant. Also with me is Dr. Katherine Meeks. She's a retired professor of sociocultural studies at Wesleyan College. She's the editor of the newly released book, Living into God's Dream, Dismantling Racism in America. We begin our discussion on racism with Dr. Meeks. She's with me via phone from Atlanta. Welcome, Dr. Meeks, to the beloved community. Thank you, it's great to be with you. In 1963, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. 53 years have passed. What, in your opinion, has happened to the dream? Well, in the first place, I think that that speech, while it was fantastic and full of great phrases and drama, it didn't, it really was, we had a lot of, we had a long ways to go from from what he was talking about in that speech to get to the, to actually get to it. And I think that in many ways we've made changes. Yes, indeed, we've made changes in this country around the relationships between blacks and whites and the status of black people. But we didn't make the kinds of changes at the very core in our society that needed to be made so that we wouldn't find ourselves in, in 2017 having to deal with the kind of polarization and uh, spirits of discord that we see currently. So, I, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a funny kind of thing because you don't want to get caught in saying, well, nothing, everything's the same because everything's not the same. Many things are different, but this, the difference hasn't, um, it hasn't penetrated the system in the ways that it needs to because we still have such horrible problems around poverty and issues of incarceration and education. So those are, there's a lot of work left to be done, even though we are better off than we were in 1963. Well, in 2008, with the election of uh, Barack Obama, uh, people thought we had entered uh, perhaps a post-racial America, that it had ended. Now, I'm talking about white people thinking that. Um, but uh but the response to his presidency and the, and the rise of just overt uh, racism uh, should have changed our mind on that, don't you think? Absolutely. And, and as a matter of fact, I, I've, been, I've been the primary uh, leader of the Dismantling Racism workshops that we do in the Diocese of Atlanta because the Episcopal Church requires everybody who's in a leadership position to take such workshops. And early on in that work, for the, over the last four years when I started it in 2012, people were saying, well, you know, maybe if we didn't talk about this so much, we wouldn't have a problem. But now folks have stopped that. I mean, it's clear we've got a problem. Nobody's making this up by just talking about it. There's a serious issue there. And if people have been paying attention throughout President Obama's administration, the racism stood up to be... Uh, recognized a lot more vividly than it had before because you know we were pretty good at pretending before but i think there were a whole bunch of white people that just could not 
get over the fact that a black family had moved into the White House. I mean, that was sort of like the the last straw, you know. And and so people just became uh, more honest about where they really were. And quite honestly, I prefer the honesty to the pretense. Someone said to me, I prefer my racists out in the open. Yes, because you know who and what you're dealing with. And when people are pretending... In, to be one thing in your face and then stabbing you in the back is difficult to deal with that. But honesty, I mean, you, you know, you can deal with honesty. I used to tell my kids that all the time. Just tell me the truth, and then we will see what we need to do after that. In the chapter, in uh, one of the chapters that you wrote in the book, uh, Living into God's Dream, the chapter is called, Why is this black woman still talking about race? Uh, yeah. You write about uh, repentance, uh, changing one's mind. Can you talk a little bit about the difference for white people and black people in regarding uh, repentance in terms of racism? Yes, I think that, um, you know, many, many white people don't understand how their skin, their white skin gives them privilege privileges that black people do not have. I mean, I, I talk to white people who came from humble beginnings, and they don't understand the concept of white privilege. But I think that because because of the way we've constructed a society in this country that if your skin is white you have a uh, you have an edge you have a, a step up above any person of color and particularly black people so one of the things that white people have to do is to begin to to be more particularly christians have to be more interested in being christian than being white and and for me that's a that takes mm. repentance that takes turning yourself around, changing your mind. African Americans have internalized, I think, the whole oppression structure. We struggled against it. We see ourselves in the light of it. We don't want to own that because it makes us sound like we have some deficit, which we do. When you look at what's happening in our inner cities, you can see some evidence that we have internalized some negative things about ourselves. And I think African Americans have a responsibility to really own that internalized depression and turn, turn away from it, turn around from it. So we've all got work to do. And I also believe that we do that work best, particularly people of faith do that work best in community with each other. Well, yeah, I wanted to focus on that. There was a, a sentence uh, in that uh, same chapter in which you wrote, I'm convinced that the work of dismantling racism and oppression cannot be done without great injury to the soul unless the worker has the capacity to pay attention to the ways in which the effort is supported by both the external community and the spirit within. Dismantling racism um, is no easy task. Uh, can you talk a bit about paying attention to spirit? Yes, I think that, you know, we've, we get into the habit of, of thinking that uh, in very simplistic terms about complicated issues, race and the dismantling of racism happens to be very complicated and complex, and we want to oversimplify it. So we just we want to say, well, if we just do this, that'll take care of it, or if we just do that. I think that we have to look at it in the, the as a complex issue and an issue where we do need each other to work on this. White people need to be in relationship with black people and other people of color, and black people need to be in relationship with white people. We can't just stand on our sides of the fence and make up our minds about who people happen to be without really getting to know who they happen to be. And it's not that easy for black people to do this because many black people don't have any opportunity to be in real relationships with white people and vice versa. So I think the, the internal side, the spiritual side, is declares, I mean, it commands that we do that, that work of building relationships and also dealing with our own selves. I mean, you can't just be mindless about this. And it's not a matter of just making somebody change a law or change a rule. Laws need to be changed. You know, we do need to have the freedom to go get on the bus or go get lunch wherever we want to, but it takes more than just changing laws to get this work done. Well, you know, um, oftentimes um, 
white people will ask when uh, confronted by a, a workshop on racism or whatever it might be. And they'll say the first thing, well, what can I do? What can I do? And I, I don't want to be too cynical, but I, but I think, and I'm speaking personally, that that question is, is hiding the discomfort. Um, I don't want to hear the painful stories of race and my captivity and the wounds of it. I just want to not feel guilty and do something. It's right. part of the doing of dismantling racism, allowing oneself to feel this discomfort and this wound. Absolutely, and and the, the and and being willing not only to feel the woundedness yourself as a white person, understanding how you got wounded by racism and the structures that that have followed it, but also being willing to be in relationship with black people. Or I'm just focusing on white and black because that's the biggest piece of this issue. Mm-hmm. Even though brown people now figure into it, but we still have more baggage around black and white than than we do anybody else and and being willing as a white person to walk alongside a black person and let them and experience their journey with them without you trying to tell them what that journey is you know when i start telling some white people what it's like to have black sons and wonder every time they leave the house if they'll come back home alive or if they'll get killed by a police officer you need to be willing to accept that that's my reality without trying to explain to me why I shouldn't feel that way. Yeah. You know, because I do feel that way, and what, regardless of what you think about it, it is how I feel. So white people have to become more willing to not edit the stories of black people. and We have to be willing to, to, to hear where people are. And too many times when we try to tell our story to somebody white, they have to fix it for us because it's painful and they want to get past the pain. But, you know, we have to be willing to be in the pain together. I'm speaking with uh, Dr. Catherine Meeks. She's the editor of a volume called Living into God's Dream, Dismantling Racism in America. And uh, one of the uh, figures that came up again and again in this volume uh, is Howard Thurman. Uh, And Dr. Mm -hmm. King called Howard Thurman one of the most influential people in his life. Uh, What does Howard Thurman and, and his work mean to you? Oh, my goodness. We don't have enough time for me to tell you, but let me tell you what I can quickly. I met Dr. Thurman before he passed away in the early 80s, and that was one of the most delightful experiences I ever had. Dr. Thurman's work is so important, and I would just encourage your listeners to read Jesus and the Disinherited and any other volumes of his that they can find. He wrote 21 books in his life, so he was a black man from Florida who really understood the necessity of finding out who you are yourself, of really understanding yourself as as a child of God and to be really um, focused and grounded in that that, uh, faith about who you are in order not to let the external world shape you in negative ways. And that's part of the process, I think, of getting well period, but particularly around race, that we have to, you know, what do we bring to the equation? And you do that. He talks about all the time about listening for the sound of the genuine in yourself, becoming an authentic person. It's difficult to do that unless you realize that that the culture doesn't define you completely. It impacts you, and you have to uh, factor it in to your understanding of yourself. But you do have to get to the core of who you are, and that's the spiritual part. And, and when you get to the core, you can go out in the world to make changes and take a real person with you rather than somebody who isn't quite sure where they stand and have to fall back on things like my skin is white or I've got money or I'm powerful because those are all illusions in many ways. And so Thurman, Thurman really contributed to helping us uh, talk about and think about what does it mean to be an authentic person that's created in the image of God and to stand in that faith and understanding in spite of what's happening external to yourself? And, you know, I just, he, he was just the most amazing soul. Catherine Meeks, uh, my guest, Living into God's Dream, Dismantling Racism in America is a book, a collection of, of chapters and essays. Can you talk about the contributors to this volume? How did you select them and, and what's the central contribution of each one? 
Yes, well, the contributors are made up of people who are both theologians and uh, a couple of lay people and a social worker and a retired psychologist and, of course, my bishop, uh, Reverend Rob Wright from the Diocese of Atlanta. And each of these people have a, a, a great message in terms of looking at race through the lens that they have, their, their discipline gives to them as well as their own journey with it. Uh, there's a, I tried to have a balance between African Americans and white people and men and women, and I feel pretty good about how that worked out. And then, of course, this edit, it's uh, the forward, forward was written by my good friend Jim Wallace from Sojourners Community. And so, what I what the hope is for this book is that it will create a more honest 21st century conversation about race. And I thought that all these contributors were able to offer a, a chapter that would help facilitate that process. And, of course, Dr. Luther Smith is a Thurman scholar, so his perspective is is deeply rooted in Thurman's way of looking at things. And Dr. Larita Coleman-Brown is a psychologist and also a person who's interested in Thurman. So there's a lot of Thurman in this in this volume and 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 then other perspectives that all can be used, I think, to help people uh, frame their own conversations in parishes and uh, churches. Uh, the book, I hope, will be used for book studies. There's a study guide in it to help with that because we, the main objective is to help people uh, get into a, a real conversation about race and a new conversation that's not, uh, you know, rooted in, well, aren't things better, and, and just those kind of oversimplified ways that we like to talk about this, but to really get into it at a deeper level. And you uh, serve uh, the Diocese of Atlanta as uh, chair of the beloved Community Commission for Dismantling Racism, and, and your last chapter is about getting dismantling racism right in Atlanta. Can you talk a little bit about that uh, experience? Yeah. Yes, uh, when I took over as chair of the commission, the, 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 the general convention of the Episcopal Church has mandated that everybody who's a leader in the Episcopal Church has to participate in dismantling racism workshops in order to be a leader in the church. And so many people in our communion do that, uh, don't do that as well as they need to, and our diocese was not doing it so well when I took over as chair. And one of the things I decided to do was to reorganize the the uh, work, the workshop, so that it had, we start with the celebration of Holy Communion, we uh, uh, acknowledge ourselves as people of faith and God's children and who have a serious illness called racism, and we are, can work on it because we have this commitment to something bigger than ourselves. And that change has just made the work transformative, because I think the work in the church is different from the work in corporate America. And we don't need to be apologetic about our faith. We need to stand in that space and say, because we have that faith, we're, we're, we have the courage to do this work because no matter how bad we feel, we have a commitment to something bigger than ourselves. And so our work has been transformed in this diocese, and we have done a lot of um, sharing with people across the country about what we're doing and how we're doing it. And we're moving into a whole new arena now in going uh, forward with uh, remembering people who were lynched in the South, primarily in Georgia. So this, this is another piece of the work that the commission is doing. And we keep pushing ourselves to get deeper and deeper into it. And folks are willing to go on that journey and get deeper about it, and I'm just really thrilled about that. Dr. Catherine Meeks has been my guest, and she's offering all of us an opportunity uh, with her book, Living into God's Dream, Dismantling Racism in America. Uh, Dr. Meeks, thank you so much for this work and for uh, spending time with me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm deeply grateful to have this opportunity to talk. You're listening to The Beloved Community. My next guest is the Honorable Joanne Hardesty. She's president of the Portland chapter of the NAACP. She's a community organizer and activist who advocates for those on the downside of power. The topic is race and racism. What happened to Martin Luther King's dream? Welcome, Joanne, to the Bluff community. It's my pleasure. Since I Have a Dream speech, it's been about 54 years. 
That sounds about right. What, in your opinion, has happened to the dream? I think the dream has been kidnapped, and it's been kidnapped by hate. It's been kidnapped by um, a sense of otherness. Uh, Dr. King really spoke to how we really are our brother's keepers, and what affects one of us affects all of us. Um, And he spoke to the higher moral fiber of our being. Um, And what we see today is that hate is actually leading the conversation. Anti is leading the conversation. Otherness is leading the conversation. And so though I'm concerned, I'm not without hope. Now, some people think, and they would say, well, now that we've had eight years of an African-American president, Mm -hmm. that we're a post-racial society. Some would say that, but they would be wrong to say that. Uh, We've never been a post-racial society because, quite frankly, as a society, we've never openly and honestly dealt with race. In my lifetime, and won't say how long that's been, but in my lifetime, it's been really clear that we've avoided conversations about race like the plague. And so I remember growing up where we talked about America as being a melting pot where people from all over the world came and convened and uh, we all, like we melted into one and that was an American, right? Um, And then when I was in my teens and 20s, we started talking about America as a tossed salad. Like, you know, all of these different cultures are intermingled and mixed, and we become this rich salad that's good for our physical well-being. But now, uh, the public dialogue really seems to be uh, focused around otherness. And so whether otherness is Muslims, whether otherness is immigrants and refugees— Otherness is still black. It's still otherness. Uh, any otherness um, seems to be a reason to uh, put barriers in place that actually prevent people from being all they could possibly be. I mean, if you look in Oregon, which is a state that supposedly it, it, we're told we're in a progressive state, we're a blue state, so we're a state where supposedly progressive values rule. But if you look at outcomes in our state, what you know is that we're basically worse off today than we were when Dr. Martin Luther King gave that speech. If you look at outcomes, whether it's it's education, whether it's home ownership, whether it's economic opportunity, whether it's health outcomes, across the board, Native Americans are at the bottom, African Americans are right on top of them, and Latinos are right on top of them. And so... I've started to just look at outcomes, right? Don't tell me how progressive you are. Don't tell me about how you want a community where we're all one. Let's look at the outcomes. And if the outcomes say in 30 years nothing's changed, uh, then we got the wrong people in office and we've got the wrong priorities. So talk about then racism, a a definition. What is racism and how does that uh, work within these structures? So The basic definition of racism is when race is used uh, to make a determination about someone's value or your expectations of that person. And so it plays out in our education system where you see African-American children are suspended at four times the rate of any other children. And I can tell you, as a black kid from a family of 10, I understand how African-American kids communicate. So we communicated a much higher voice than the white families would communicate. And so what white people perceive as aggression is actually communication, a communication style that's different than their own. You look at the police. You look at the numbers for police. In a city with a 7% African-American population, 44% of the stops for gang enforcement officers are black people. And so you got to say, well, wait a minute, gang members are normally between, what, 12 and 24? You'd have to be stopping a lot of the people over and over and over again to get to 44% of your stops being African-American. Uh, and what's, I think what's disheartening 
is that these systems, this isn't new, right? This has been going on as long as I've been tracking, and I've been tracking it for over 20 years. And so what's troubling is that the people in position of power don't see it as a problem. They just see it as, well, that's just the way it is. Well, it's that way because our public policies, our public practices, and our outcomes are are uh, are not adequate uh, to address this uh, inequity in our system. So why don't white people get this? Well, again, this is where my hope comes in uh-huh. because I think we are at a place that's very similar to where we were at the height of the civil rights movement. For well over a decade, African-Americans have been talking about being abused and brutalized by law enforcement in their communities, whether they're doing anything illegal or not. Um, It has only been recent in the last year and a half, two years with the Michael Browns, with the, uh, you know, all across the country, just people left and right being able to see with video cameras, police killing unarmed people. And so just like in the 60s, where all of a sudden white middle class America um, couldn't ignore the brutality that police were actually uh, exerting against black people who were simply trying to register to vote, who were simply trying to get an education, who were simply trying uh, to uh access uh, services that any community member should be able to access. Once white people in the 60s started seeing that on their TV set, on the evening news every night, good, well-meaning white people could no longer just sit on the sideline. It wasn't now, it's just those people that are causing trouble. No, they could see it. And I think we're at that tipping point once again. We've had two years nonstop of video after video after video that tells us that there's something fundamentally wrong in the United States of America when it comes to policing. And I have been, uh, I've been heartened because there are white people who have stepped into the fray and say, we can no longer sit on the sideline anymore. Uh, my most favorite organization is Surge PDX, uh, standing, showing up for racial justice, uh, Portland. Uh, it's a, uh, White people came together after Trayvon Martin nationally and decided we need to create an opportunity to educate white people about race and racism and give them an opportunity to be good, strong community allies to communities of color. Uh, And Surge does a fabulous job of a 10-month training program that actually really prepares white people to be supporters of communities of color as we continue these battles. And some of those uh, kinds of things are really starting to admit uh, what what white means right. in a privileged society. Yes. You know, uh, saw a sign recently that said, you know, uh, white people have the luxury of not talking about race. Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so we have to admit it. Right, right. And quite frankly, we've got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Uh-huh. Race is a uncomfortable conversation to have because the moment you start the conversation, the person you're talking to is figuring out how to justify their position in the world. Uh, you know, I can't tell you how many people have told me about how they march with Dr. King and, you know, how they've been strong allies of communities of color forever, right? But we are beyond the uh, sofa armchair activists. We need white people that are vocal, mm-hmm. that are visible, and that are clearly articulating a message about this not being acceptable in a society that we're leaving for our children and grandchildren. Yeah, it can't just be defensive about it or no, trying to do no. these things. Just admit it. You know, hey, you've got lettuce on your teeth. Right. Hey, let's point that out and let's do something about That's it. That's right. And and quite frankly, it's okay to be uncomfortable, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody's saying that you personally put the system in place. But we're also saying that as a white person, you benefit without you having to do anything just by virtue of being white. And there's also an access to change. Yes. That you have as responsibility, that That's we right. have, uh, white people have as responsibility to use that privilege for advantage for everyone. That's liberating for them when we get rid of racism. I think that is a strong message. I think uh, what I, I think the fear is if we address racism head on, is somehow white people will lose something, mm-hmm. right? If I stand up as a racial justice champion, 
I'm going to lose something. I'm going to lose my privilege, my position. I'm going to lose something, right? Well, just the opposite happens. If you stand up, you gain. And what you gain is a broader community. What you gain is a, a broader understanding of other people and other people's experiences. And what you gain, we hope, are lifetime friends that now they got your back uh, for the issues that you care about. Some people will ask, well, what can we do? What, what, is, what would you say to, as you address, and you often address uh, white audiences, yes. uh, what, what do you, when they ask you, mm-hmm. what, are we, what do will. we do? <laughs> That's right. right. Well, I mean, I tell them uh, to educate themselves. Mm-hmm. There are a plethora of books and movies, and I always refer them to Michelle Alexander's Understanding the New Jim Crow, uh, the New Jim Crow, uh, mass incarceration in a time of colorblindness. I, uh, and there's a companion book that's actually a workbook that goes along with that now. I encourage them to watch the local video if they're from Portland uh, that was made about police violence in Portland called Arresting Power. Um, I also tell them to join community institutions that are already doing the work. Join organizations like the NAACP, uh, like the Urban League, institutions who've been around for the long haul, who really work on these issues systemically and, and over, as I said, the long haul. I'm speaking with Joanne Hardesty on the beloved community. She is uh, president of the NAACP, among a number of other things. And now we have uh, a new president coming in yes. who basically platform was um, fear. Yes. Uh, fear of the other. Yes. And, uh, and a lot of these ugly things that seem to be just under the surface, maybe just barely on the surface, now almost overtly. Right. Uh, what do you think this means for um, moving ahead? Well, I mean, I, I think it's actually, I like my racist uh, outspoken and clear. <laughs> uh-huh. I want to yeah. know who they are. Um, I think do- what Obama's administration taught us was that racism was alive and well in America because never before has a president faced such uh, just uh, dis- discrimination and arrogance, right? I mean, what has anyone ever called a president a liar from Congress, right, when he's speaking to the world? Um, and so what we learned from Obama's presidency is that um, it was a fabulous organizing opportunity for white supremacists. And so white supremacist organizations got stronger and stronger. Uh, we saw it play out here in Oregon with the Bundy gang that came to Malheur County and took over the federal building. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, for me, when they were acquitted of all charges was the day I knew Donald Trump could be president. Because if you can have a group of armed white guys come and take over an entire community for almost a month, uh, if that had been Black Lives Matters, if that had been the Native Americans that had been fighting for water rights, if that had been any people of color at all, we would have all been killed day one. Yet, these white men with rifles were allowed to take over a town where people were scared to send their kids to school. They didn't go out to restaurants. And so... Obama's election, the election of the first black president, really created this space. Because guess what? That's where the Tea Party all of a sudden emerged. And all of a sudden now we've got, and it's interesting how we keep coming up with new names for white supremacist groups. I forget what they're calling them now, but now they've got this new fancy name. They're white supremacists. That's, they're KKK, right? And so for me, the fact that Trump is president mm-hmm. and Trump was elected based on his rhetoric of deporting three million uh, immigrants, uh, uh, criminal immigrants, he says. So, so we'll, it'll be interesting to figure out how he sees that. Uh, creating a registry of Muslims. Uh, and of course, what he's promised for the African American community is more, please. Not less, but more, right? So, um, and so the good news is that we have an uh, awakening white community. We have communities of color who've been well-organized and really preparing themselves because we have this battle regardless of whether there's a Democrat or Republican in office. Um, And what we know is that the fight is going to be fierce uh, with uh, Trump in office. But we also know that there's a lot more of us who don't buy into the hate, um, who've been watching this grow, this growing hate groups with the white supremacist groups growing with fear. 
um, we're, we're starting to see that play out much more visibly. I mean, even at OHSU, where someone put a noose on a on a mm-hmm. sign on mm-hmm. a door. Um, and so we're seeing this play out all over Oregon. And in fact, Oregon has the highest number of reported hate crimes since the election and primarily focused on African-Americans and immigrants and refugees. And so uh, with Trump coming in office, the racism will be overt. It'll be in your face. And hopefully we will have a community of love to confront that hate. And because it's overt, as you mentioned before, now we can deal with it. We can deal with and it. And people will see it. Yes. Well, and I know that uh, this might be a good time to talk about a march that uh, communities of color yes. are convening on January 28th. It's going to start at Oregon Convention Center at the Dr. Martin Luther King uh, statue. And quite frankly, we're organizing this march just for that reason, is because we believe communities of color need to be able to come together and talk about how we build a community of love to confront the hate that we know that we're going to confront in 2017 and beyond. Community of Love, Joanne Hardesty has been my guest on Beloved Community. I appreciate all of your work and for being with me today. It has been my pleasure. You're listening to The Beloved Community. Teresa Rayford is the lead organizer of Don't Shoot Portland, a social justice movement in support of Black Lives Matter as a response to police brutality and the criminalization of black American youth. She works as a community advocate and is currently educating neighborhoods to provide safety strategies for marginalized communities. The focus is strengthening relationships to fight discrimination and organized hate. Welcome, Teresa, to the beloved community. Well, thank you for having me. It's now 53 years since uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King gave his famous speech, I Have a Dream. Uh, What, in your opinion, uh, over this time has happened to the dream? Uh, Well, I think that there's a dysfunction in uh, adequately training and programming our youth on what the dream actually meant, uh, what the work as far as policy and the politics that Dr. King was involved in. I, I think that when we had the civil rights movement and we had the death of people like Dr. King and Malcolm X and all of these great leaders, the Kennedys, um, I think that people thought that it was time to stop and that America would heal itself and that we would overcome and that everything, because we had certain amendments and certain rights that were recognized, uh, that everything was going to take care of itself. And that's where the dream got stumped. You know, it was like an arrested development. Uh, There wasn't any kind of, you know, let's continue organizing, let's continue educating. Uh, We started fighting for things that were just uh, like, um, let's say, tokens of diversity or tokens of inclusion. Uh, I want to be the first black this or we're going to have the first black that. And we didn't think that we needed generations to be uh, a part of our community empowerment and corporate responsibility and globalization. Uh, so now we're seeing where you you hold people back and you let the first one in. Uh, that doesn't work. You know, society is one sided. You have a perception that. Uh, some people have made it and other people haven't tried hard enough, but we never built the political infrastructure to allow the multitudes of people. We were wanting and seeking uh, that first, that one, that, you know, that person that would overcome and bring in the rest. And I don't think that that was a challenging uh, way to build bridges in America. I think that the biggest challenge was to incorporate education for all of our children and to make sure that everybody was on the side of the dream team and that we wanted them all to be recognized as leaders and and to accomplish things in life and not wait for the next Dr. King, but to be that dream. And that's your work as a community advocate for uh, educating people in neighborhoods. What is the work that you're doing specifically? Well, right now, specifically, it's a lot of work that's in response to the, the hate crimes and issues that have happened since the Trump presidency was announced on November 8th. Um, as a Black Lives Matter activist, we've dealt with racism from protesting and from people in the community that find it hard for us to, you know, find it hard to listen to Black Lives Matter 
matter as a value for people that there's been uh, criminalized. But what we've seen is the uprise in hate-motivated crimes and organized hate and discrimination. And so we're working with communities to help them build strategies like the ones that we've had to build around keeping ourselves safe, uh, you mm. know, from racism and from violence uh, that's perpetrated because of racism. I know that you heard about uh, recently Dylan Roof was, you know, found guilty for murdering people in a church. Uh, we've worked within the churches out here to make sure that community members are recognizing that there are, you know, elders in the congregations, that there are safety issues that they need. Uh, we're doing all of that work right now with schools and communities. It's an ongoing thing. Uh, the hate, you can't recognize it. It's not, you know, th- we do have uh, paperwork and literature that's going out there that shows the symbols of some of the white supremacist groups. But myself as a black woman, if I'm on the bus, I'm not going to recognize the person that's prone to violence or that would want to hurt me because of my color. Um, and we're trying to help families and communities recognize things that are available for us to look out for. And so we've been doing a lot of work. We had a training session at the Artist Repertory Theater, and we had people from the Black Antifa come out and talk about the supremacy here in Oregon, the different groups, uh, what parts of town they're in, uh, how to recognize them, who to call in case you see something inappropriate happening or if you feel like somebody's going to hurt you. Uh, we had the Urban League show up. We had a brother named Chris Odom that came out and talked about black self-defense. Uh, my friend Nate Cohen talked about the Holocaust and the use of safe houses and how they were able, you know, his grandmother, um, how they were able to operate under the regime, the regimen of the Nazis. And, you know, we're, we're looking at those issues in this country um, in 2017. But what we have to realize is that there are generations that weren't privy to having to protect themselves in that way. And so we're working with the elders to learn those same techniques so that we can share them in communities and keep ourselves safe. And this has happened since uh, the Trump election in a large part is that it has emboldened uh, people to be overtly racist. Absolutely. Absolutely. The racism was uh, there, perhaps a little under the surface, not quite as bold and upfront as it's been. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're is that uh, is that what you're talking about organized hate? Well, we're talking about the movement um, to violate and to hurt people. Mm-hmm. You know, during the Trump campaign, uh, there were cries of you know hit them, knock them down, and I'll pay your legal fees. I believe that people really believe that the government mm-hmm. is going to take care of them if they violate the safety um, of others. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that there are people blatantly here in Oregon. Larnell Bruce was killed in August by a white supremacist. This was before the Trump campaign. But if you hear like what Dylan Roof is saying now, he's not sorry. They're not feeling bad about what's happening. They're trying to promote a war against racists. You know, they want the racists to fight each other. And so when you know that there are people strategically organizing on these social media groups, they're using their own print and their own videos, um, they have communication with networks of people that would not you know, would be tolerant of that. And it's coming out and it's showing up in our schools. It's showing up in our communities and we have to be ready for it. We can't wait for it to happen and say what's going on. We have to recognize that, like you said, Mm -hmm. before Trump was elected president, we had issues. They just weren't so bold. And now we are seeing the boldness of them. And we have to be recognizing that we need to connect with community so that we don't become the perpetrators of hate as well because of our own fears. Teresa Rayford is my guest on The Beloved Community. She is uh, lead organizer of Don't Shoot Portland, uh, a social justice movement in support of Black Lives Matter as a response to police brutality. I want to turn to that uh, question next. Um, in 2010, your nephew was shot and killed in Old Town Portland. What was his name? His name was Andre Payton. And what happened? Well, um, he had he had grew up in Portland. Um, you know, my dad, my, my brother actually was in the penitentiary for several years, but he had custody of his son when he got out. Um, and Andre had asked if he could go to this club, the Barracuda Nightclub downtown in northwest uh, Cooch area. And my brother kept telling him he couldn't go down there. He was like, no, you're not old enough to go to a club. You don't need to go. And he'd say, well, Dad, it's all ages. You know, I'm just going to listen to some music. And so one of the weekends when he was staying with his mom, he asked the same question. And she said, well, just go on and go down there. Call me when you get there. 
And within a couple of minutes after him arriving, he called his mom, and about three minutes later, he was shot on the ground. Um, and so as a community, I had I had just come home from Texas. I had been, you know, I was born and raised in Portland, but I had come home to visit, and it devastated me. You know, I, sure. I couldn't believe that this child that just graduated from high school that June was, you know, before September, you know, was even over, that he was dead. And then uh, the thing that really shocked me is the outreach at the church. When we saw over 500 people showed up to the church for his funeral, um, I saw so many people that were there. And I thought, oh, wow, thank you guys for honoring the life of my nephew. And so many people said, oh, no, his mom is my cousin or his grandma is my sister. Or I realized that a lot of those people in that church were related to my nephew and that people that were, you know, fourth-generation Oregonians like myself, that the children that were out here uh, perpetrating violence upon each other, that is very likely that they're related. Um, it's not likely that if there was a black shooter that was involved in my nephew's death, that that kid doesn't know our family or our family doesn't know their family. It's just the challenge of the children knowing each other outside of gang circles or um, community network circles. And so... When I saw that um, as part of the challenge, because I didn't think like, oh, wow, the gang violence is so out of line, out of control. I thought, wow, our our people are so out of touch. Uh, there needs to be more resources. We need to have more communication because it's so sad to have everybody connect at a funeral and be happy to see each other and be like it was like a, a reunion there. And. All of that was sad to me. I wanted to bring the reunion to everyday life. I, I decided to become an activist so that I could basically pull our community back together, bridging communication, uh, bridging civic engagement, uh, bridging um, unity, you know, uh, getting people on the same page. We had so many issues that we felt we were on different sides of, and we hadn't communicated. And so it was just to the disadvantage of our children. It was for the detriment um, of them, you know, and I thought we need to do something about it. And that's when you started to organize to resist uh, violence. Yeah, in all forms. In all forms. And then in 2014, following the killing of uh, Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, you organized Don't Shoot Portland. Uh, tell me about uh, Don't Shoot Portland. What What, what is happening yeah. with that? Well, actually, uh, Don't Shoot Portland, it was an immediate response to the killing in Ferguson. Uh, being an activist and a, a community advocate, there were a lot of tools that we had, skill set that I had, um, that was that was able. It gave me power to support some of the people in Ferguson at the time of the uprising, and so as I saw the support being crucial to their movement, I saw the need for us to be connected on this side so that that support could continue, uh, because I realized the kids weren't going to just protest and go home. I think they stayed outside for almost over 100 days uh, straight, would not go to school, would not go back into the houses to live inside or anything. So we needed to, you know, basically create strategies to keep them organized. And when we did that um, here in Portland, one of the things that we tried to figure out is how is what's happening in Ferguson relative to what's happening here in Portland? And how do we build a movement that's not only going to sustain the necessities of uh, solidarity for them, but will help us build a foundational structure for us? And so we came up with the name Don't Shoot Portland because we wanted to focus on not only the police brutality, but also the the black on black crime, the community violence, uh, all of these policies that were systemic that promoted state sanctioned discrimination uh, because I call poverty violence myself and so uh, we called it a community action plan and we just started working we worked together with students from the Portland Student Union at Portland State University students from Reed College Lewis and Clark groups like uh, the Portland Rising Tide and um, just so many organizations came together to build what we now call a community action plan for Don't Shoot Portland so and you ran for sheriff of Multnomah County uh, this <laughs> well, past election as well, a write-in candidate. Yeah, it was a write-in candidacy that I didn't initiate, but I supported it because uh -huh. it was community-supported. And I think we ended up getting over 17,000 votes, 
which is That's amazing. Incredible. Yeah, for well, people writing your name on the ballot. So why are they writing you in? <laughs> What's going on? Well, I'm a community advocate. I think that a lot of people know who I am uh, because I do the advocacy part. A lot of people know us for protesting, but on the everyday issues that people are facing, I'm kind of a first responder. And so a lot of people that had... Uh, that found out that people were going to write me in, decide to take it on and create a campaign on my behalf. And I was very, you know, I was overwhelmed by all of it because I I didn't, you know, I never considered running for sheriff or any kind of policing position. But at the same time, uh, our group has been meeting with Colette Peters at the Department of Corrections. We've been uh, working with Lewis and Clark students at McLaren Jail. And so the jail operations and the management of them was very intimately involved. That was part of our strategy for community organizing. So I thought, hmm, that's one of the things that the sheriff does. They manage the jails. They deal with mm-hmm. these these processes. And so let's go ahead and see where this can take us. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went with it, and it was pretty great. You know, 13 days, 17,000 votes. I think that we proved our civic engagement and our political power as a movement. And so I'm, you know, excited to see where that takes us. Has your influence, do you think, um, uh, more awareness uh, about uh, police issues and racism within uh, police departments? all around and including Portland. Are we making headway? We're making a lot of headway. I've, I've seen my, um, you know, quotes and articles from the Atlantic to the Wall Street Journal to Reuters, Forbes. We've been in so many daily costs, so many uh, global media outlets uh, talking about strategy, organizing and political activism. And when you can get past being in the street and being known for, you know, taking over a bridge or something and be known for harnessing the political activism and taking it to legislators and working on, you know, group committees, getting people to go to your state capitol and lobby. um, That's a big opportunity because uh, the real change comes from people being engaged with with the process. And a lot of people are intimidated by the political process uh, because leaders don't bring them in. A lot of times you have leaders that say, I represent these diverse communities and they'll come out, they'll take a photo op with communities of color or marginalized communities. And that's the extent of their relationship. Uh, Don't Shoot Portland has created leaders throughout of our communities. We have elder leaders. We have youth leaders. We have disabled leaders. We have, you know, LGQBA, uh, TX. You know, everybody is a leader in our movement because we empower through education. And the expectation is that we will continue to support one another using what we learn. And so I think, you know, that for that manner to be a part of our movement I'm I'm just excited about it. I'm excited to see what the kids in the next generation do with the work that's being done now. We don't want to see the ball drop like we saw 53 years ago. What would you like uh, people in the suburbs to know? White people to know. And I, what uh, what would you like to communicate to them? How can how can we all get together in fighting yeah. racism? Well, I think, first of all, white people need to understand that it's okay to recognize racism, mm-hmm. even if it's within ourselves, because we're products of America. America has a social consciousness that is uh, propagated on white supremacy. We have a patriarchy. Um, we have a lot of misogyny. Trump fits right into the whole American pie and the the, the dream of America. Uh, and we have to realize that we have to own that. And we have to say, if we recognize it, there's something we can do about it. But if we continue to exclude ourselves from the racist um, or the race question or the race conversation, then we're we're leaving that component of necessity out. All of us have to be a part of dismantling this mess because we're all benefiting from it in one way or another. A lot of us are benefiting negatively, um, and a lot of us are benefiting, you know, in a in a very uh, privileged way. And even having that privilege, recognizing that privilege and not calling out racism uh, is just to the detriment of all of us if we're not able to recognize it. So I think that, first of all, admitting that race is an issue in this country, um, not being surprised by it, but being disgusted by it and dismantling it from where we stand in our communities, doing whatever we can. Teresa Rayford, thank you uh, for being with me today, and thank you for your work in this panel and all your work uh, for education and activism uh, for justice in the beloved community here in Portland. (laughs) Well, thank you. You've been listening to The Beloved Community, resources for activism. Also catch my weekly show, Progressive Spirit. Both shows are on stations across the country and are distributed through the Pacifica Radio Network. 
The website for more information and links to podcasts is progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. Be well.